Whether it was witchery, some modern science, or a demon let loose from hell, I am unable to decide. Williams Bell from an authenticated history of the Bell Witch. Who, who's there? From 1817 to 1821, an entity calling itself Kate tormented the Bell family of West Tennessee. There is still no widely accepted explanation for this haunting. Coming summer 2024, on the new hit audio drama Afflicted, the Bell Witch returns to haunt a family in 1960s Tennessee. But only if we raise enough money to pay our cast and crew a living wage. Help bring this haunting to life and snag exclusive rewards like limited edition supporter t-shirts, producer credits, and more at afflictedaudio.com support. But do it quickly. Some perks are limited only to early supporters. again what's that place called (laughs) (laughs) okay all right i got it hi welcome back to horror struck my name is cecilia i'm charles king of barovia so riley and i are are using a different recording um program to record um so i don't know if we're gonna use this video at all uh but we'll soon hopefully have a video podcast but anyway uh we were messing with the settings or i was and when i went to record we did our whole intro and riley was not being recorded (laughs) so we are that's that's why we left because uh, we've done this before today uh happy pride month yay Thank you. Yay. Happy Pride Month to me and only me. Oh, man. Have we recorded since I got my ears pierced? No, I can't even see your ears right now. You're wearing I'm... giant headphones. <laughs> Thank God. I thought I was going to have to wear my like my little earbuds because I didn't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. See, look. Oh, my God. I got holes. Oh, my God. You know what? I, I Just I call me the too, Pope. I'm so holy. Oh, my God. Is that the same joke that Fred weasley made as he was dying oh my god is it he definitely makes so. a holy joke someone is it about makes him a joke or maybe switched. it's george he got his ear blown off or something yeah it's george george gets his ear blown off because he doesn't only just lose his ear in that book oh no he loses his brother and we all lost a sane normal author so it's fine i mean i don't know if she ever was kind of realized ignore her now um, yeah, anyways, we don't want to talk about that during Pride Month. We want to talk about fun, happy things. Yeah, fuck J.K. Rowling. Let's talk about parental murder. Talk about young love that oh. is toxic or non-toxic. Sometimes. I think the first movie, definitely toxic. The second movie, I think, is up to interpretation. I think... Even um, if the author has a stance and is very hard on his stance. Does he? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm excited to learn what it is. Uh, I read the book and I think I can definitely assume what it is, but I guess we'll talk about that when we talk about Let the Right One In. And then our first movie is Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. Yay! Yay! Um, 
Should we just start off with Heavenly Creatures then? Yeah, please, let's. I like that in our intro that you'll never hear. We were like, wow, we haven't done a ketchup in forever. Let's do it. Now we're like, nope, we've already done it amongst ourselves. Well, I don't know <laughs> I that it, um, yeah, it had nothing to do with horror. It was just suggestions on random stuff we've been watching. If you guys like Yellow Jackets and are obsessed with Liv Houston like I am, go watch Drama World. It's really good. Yeah. And, uh, and Riley uh, and I are going to be doing some sort of spinoff watch series on the Patreon. So if you're a Patreon member and there's something in particular you'd like us to watch, please let us know because we can't decide. We're like Twilight, uh, Friday the 13th, uh, the Barbie movies. <laughs> I, I do like this Friday the 13th idea. I feel like we should pick something that does uh, have a long span, like a long running franchise and see how it evolves. I just watched all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, so I do need something to jump uh, back into. Lots of options. And we can't do Halloween because Halloween's become a tradition, so. I love Halloween. I've been putting off watching so many of those movies because I'm like, no, we'll watch that this year on the podcast. (laughs) I have to wait five years to see this one. I mean, we could also just watch them and then still do a pretend it's my reaction. (laughs) Um, Anyway, let's talk about Heavenly Creatures. Yes, please. I know you've been so excited to talk about it. I saw this movie for the first time last year. I had never seen it. I uh, I watched it because I had listened to a podcast that talked about the uh, the real life case. And at the end, they're like, yeah, this is what the Peter Jackson movie is based on. I was like, that's what Peter Jackson's movie is based on? I had just never gotten around to watching it. I love this movie. It's great. Oh, man, that's crazy. I have such a different experience with this movie being a queer person. I watched Mm. this movie when I was 14, not knowing anything about it other than, oh, those girls kiss? Well, now I have to watch it. And boy, was I in for a surprise. Yeah. I I really loved this movie when I first saw it. And there's always something in the back of my head when I think, oh, I should rewatch that, that tells me, stop, no, don't do it. Yeah, that true crime case um, definitely plays into that. Yeah, for sure. And I love Peter Jackson. I think Lord of the Rings, I think, is what really made me fall in love with filmmaking, especially watching like the if you get like the big box sets, they'd have all the behind the scenes stuff. And I used to watch it all the time. And I was just like enraptured. And it's so funny because as a Lord of the Rings fan, That's like really, I feel like now that's what everyone's first introduction to Peter Jackson is. Mm -hmm. So then when you go into the rest of his filmography, you're like, isn't that what I was expecting? Yeah, Lord of the Rings was not mine. This was my introduction to him. Um, Lord of the Rings, I have a very weird relationship with because of mm, i'm sure mm-hmm. i've told the story before like a stepdad made me made us watch all of the movies in one sitting and was just delusional by the end of it and had no idea where i was or what was going on but i do remember watching those movies because they were made in like the peak of bad cgi and i do remember them looking great and like being really restrained 
And I think you can definitely see all of that in his first film as well. And it's really interesting to watch this evolution of him getting even better at uh, integrating these effects into his movies and making them so seamless, especially in a movie like Heavenly Creatures that has these really bizarre fantasy sequences. Like this, I don't know if I would even classify this movie as a straight-up horror movie. It is more of like a dark fantasy movie. Mm, yes, with true crime terror with, yeah, with true crime on top of that, which we don't usually get into. I think the only other time we have is when we were talking about Slenderman because of, uh, weirdly, a very similar case happened. Yeah, very similar, um, but also like very different. I watched or I listened to, uh, what was the name of the podcast? It's two like criminal psychologists who reviewed this movie and talked about the case itself. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because there is a term for it, like what happened between the girls, but it's different in the Heavenly Creatures case as opposed to the Slender Man slayings or stabbings, because they didn't actually kill anybody, because it was one girl like took power over the other. But when you look at the case, the case um, with Heavenly Creatures, the power dynamic was always shifting between the two girls. So there mm-hmm. wasn't like one girl really leading the charge so it's really interesting um and they also talked about how it was really rare too because most matricide is committed by sons Mm, um it's very rarely committed by women so there were a lot of elements to the case that were really unique i don't follow a lot of true crime stuff but it it does just from the things i know and like watching law and order and stuff that's based on you know actual cases it does seem very unique to this do should we uh just do a tiny quick little here's what the actual true crime case was just so it's easier to follow um what's going on in the film yeah the film is actually for the most part pretty faithful to the cases it happened um, so I'll just give a summary for the movie, because I feel like that kind of covers it all. they're kind of both, yeah. Um, this took place in the 50s. It follows two girls, Pauline and Juliet, who become very quick, inseparable friends. This takes place in New Zealand. And it it's just about them becoming so obsessed with each other. They make their own world. They call it the Fourth Kingdom. And there comes a moment in their friendship where Juliet is going to be taken away to South Africa. The girls view Pauline's mother as being the only thing standing in their way for Pauline to go with Juliet. So they devise a plan and they kill Pauline's mother. They did not go the way they had anticipated, so they weren't able to play it off as a accident and then they found Pauline's journals and then they knew for sure it wasn't an accident and the case slash the the movie also ends with cards to let you know kind of like what happened they both went on trial they got sentenced the length of their sentence was um during her majesty's pleasure is what they call it so pretty much uh they both ended up serving five years and then the only thing 
that they were told was that they could never talk or see each other again. And to everyone's understanding is they didn't. Yeah, it's it's kind of a crazy, crazy and violent murder, too. Oh, man. I think uh, one of the craziest things about the true crime case as well is after this movie came out, it was then revealed that Juliet Hume was uh, going by the pen name Anne... Oh, what was it? Anne Perry. And she had been, like, writing these crime mystery novels. And she actually just passed away this April? And I just think yeah. that's uh, that's a very weird thing to do after you've um, committed a murder. But it, it's fine. I guess she's got a lot of insight into crime. Yeah, and she's not just a writer. She was a well-known, well-published. Like, mm-hmm. people were shocked. I listened... Um, It was so funny. The podcast that I mentioned, I'll put a link down below if you want to listen to it. But one of the girls, because it was, you know, one of the women presenting the case to the other, um, she said, yeah, it was, you know, Ann Perry. And there was a point where she's like, wait, she's the Ann Perry? She's not pretending? No, she's Ann Perry. She's like, shut the front door. (laughs) What? So she's super well known, especially to people in that sphere. Um, So it was, yeah. It was really shocking. And she has been the only one of the two girls to ever give an interview Mm -hmm. after the events and after, because they both changed their names, uh, obviously, when they um, were released. Actually, I think the government changed their names for them. But makes sense. It'd be harder to find each other that way as well. Yeah. They'd want to reconnect. It's super interesting. I can't imagine, though, like being one of those girls and like for 40 years. You've, like, put this terrible thing behind you. Because neither of them committed a crime ever since. And then you're like, hey, Peter Jackson has a movie coming out. This New Zealand director. What's it about? Us. Okay. Yeah, you'd have to do a lot of compartmentalizing just in the entire time that you're alive with that kind of on your conscience. I can't imagine. This movie is so interesting i think it's so well cast it did such a good job of really finding the right actresses for the role and their chemistry together is so good and so believable they enter into this obsession so fast with each other and it's it's believable um i read that apparently and this is kate winslet and melanie linsky both's debut roles Um, They were so into these characters that they would stay in character as Juliet and Pauline when they weren't filming. So I think it's, um, yeah, if I were Peter Jackson and I saw this, I would be absolutely horrified and think that, oh no, I've created the second coming of these murderers. (laughs) Um, But I think... It was really smart because a lot of movies that are about teenagers are cast with adults, but they were both, Mm. I believe, like 18, probably younger at the time. I, yeah, I'm trying to remember how old they were. I think they were either 17 or 18, but my guess is they probably have to be 18 because... I mean, you don't see any nudity, but they had to be nude while filming these scenes. So I can't imagine them have, doing right. that with an underage. No, um, I would hope not. Actor. 
But I think it is definitely smart to cast people that were the same age as the actual girls because teenage girls are incredibly intense. I don't think that you can manufacture that kind of chemistry and they are, they're both fantastic and do exactly what needs to be done in these roles. And I don't want to speculate on what really happened because the only people who will ever really know are going to be um, Juliet and Pauline. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about the movie objectively, um, I think for sure the girls were in love with each other. Um, And it's funny because when you look at the movie, I feel like, especially watching it a second time, it's so interesting because I think if this were a teenage girl and a teenage boy it would not Mm -hmm. have been viewed the same way Uh, but because they were both girls and they were suspected to be lesbians it was viewed as this very very harmful toxic thing it's really interesting that you bring that up because it is essentially like this is just romeo and juliet and that is so romanticized it's it's so funny to me that like that is kind of what brings about all of the tragedy is these people being so afraid of homosexuality and so afraid of this intensity between two girls that when they, you know, try to take them away from each other, it becomes so dire. And I think in terms of reading the film as queer, I think they do a really good job of keeping everything ambiguous because we are in this fantasy world for so much of it that the girls themselves have created as like a safe haven. And a lot of this is told through Pauline's actual journals. So we have this very unreliable narrator at the root of things as well. And there are a lot of instances where they stop referring to themselves as themselves. They're, uh, they, are their characters of this story that they're creating. So they're not Pauline and Juliet, they're Gina and Deborah, or sometimes they're Charles, the King and whoever. So a lot of it is very questionable as well, because it almost seems like they're role-playing. Like there is a scene where they have a sexual relationship, but in their minds at the moment, they're their characters. So I don't know how much of it spills over into their true selves. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure because, yeah, that teen girl relationships are just so different than male ones. I mean, we talked about it in our Jennifer Jennifer's Body episode because mm-hmm. it has very similar vibes. But I also feel like female friendships, usually they're a lot more open than what you would see other friendships. So it kind of makes sense that they're so intense uh, because that's kind of what they are. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as silly as it sounds now, I was a teenage girl at one point. Um, So strange. Very weird. Um, Yeah. And I, you know, experienced those friendships and had toxic friendships like that as well that were very intense and like, not to anyone's fault. It was just two personalities that were very bad for each other. And I I don't know. It makes me very sad what happened with these girls because I think the root of it is 
because it was the 1950s, because they were in a small town, they had never met another person that they related to so much. So when the threat of them being, being, you know, separated from each other came up, it was extremely dire because they thought, you know, I'll never meet another person like this. The world is so small. This is so intense. I think that's important to view as well as them being teenagers, because piling all of that on top of everything else, it that's why it made sense to them to do something so drastic in that moment. At least how the movie portrayed it, they very much, what they needed in their lives were what the other person had. So it was mm-hmm. just kind of like a weird thing that they met at the time they did. Because Pauline really wanted something more than her life. And Juliet's family, they were wealthy. And she had parents that seemed very loving. And that wasn't something that Pauline felt like she was experiencing from her own parents. And then Juliet always felt abandoned by her parents. So the idea of like having someone there who wasn't just going to leave, who would fight for you, I can imagine how appealing that was. I think uh, the parents in this movie are so interesting as well because they are extremely absent. So they are finding solace in each other because they don't really have anyone else. Like Juliet's parents are going through all of this drama with her mom being a cheater and they're getting divorced. And on the surface... Pauline's family seems a bit better, but then you have these instances where they run like a boarding home and there's a guy staying there who sexually assaults her. He is much older and then she is blamed for this assault. And they also just seem to have no understanding of who their daughter is. There's a scene at the very beginning where, or it may It may be later, actually. I think it's when they're talking to a therapist. They're like, yeah, she was always such a bright, happy girl. Like the girl who looks so miserable in her school photos and like barely talks to anyone else and doesn't open up at all. Are are you seeing the same person as we are? It just seems like they never notice her for who she actually is. I think the movie does a very, very good job of they're fantasy slipping into reality, mm-hmm. especially towards the end. They start merging reality with fantasy. And even though you as a viewer know it's fake, it almost looks real. Like, yeah, during one of the therapy sessions or like they're getting or Pauline's getting yelled at at school. I can't remember. Like the figure in her head like comes out and like stabs him in the chest and she like leaves. Oh, um, that's actually really interesting. It's um, it's at the therapist's office, but these characters they have, they create this son called Diallo, and he becomes this like murderous protector of their kingdom. And that's basically what they're encompassing to like justify their actions at the end. They're like, oh, well, we have to kill my mom to protect the fourth world. And that's what we do in our fantasy world. So yeah, obviously, this is what we should do in real life. One thing that is a little more clear when you look into the case as opposed to the movie is my understanding is it was for sure Pauline's mom was the only one standing in their way from 
like okay. letting them go. They were even told at one point that yes, Pauline can go with you. And then oh, apparently no. the mom put her foot down and said no. So it really was something where they felt like she was the only thing keeping them apart. And it was very premeditated. The murders happened yeah. in uh, June, but they started, Pauline started writing about their plot in February. Oh, okay. So there's absolutely no way that they could have uh, gotten out of this having, you know, found her journals. That's, yeah. you know, they frame it very differently in the movie where none of the parents are on board with keeping them together. They're all very afraid of this relationship. Homosexuality was still considered a mental illness at the time. My guess it it was, um, it was mixed reports whether or not uh, some of the parents, if they had just been lying to like satiate Mm. them. So I think that's probably like Peter Jackson and Fran, uh, was it Walsh? Yeah. Fran Walsh. She's a she's a writer producer. She's also married to Peter Jackson, um, but she co-wrote a lot of his films with him. I think it was probably just an interpretation they decided to take, which makes sense because, like, what parent would be like, "Yeah, take my child to South Africa. It's fine." I mean, honestly, I would have believed it because of how neglectful these parents are. But yeah, in framing it in the movie, it does you know make things make a bit more sense. My hang-up, though, was there's a scene where Pauline's like, yeah, they won't let me get a passport. I'm like, well, if you kill your mom, you still can't leave the country. You don't have a passport. So what's the point? Just let her live and wait until you're 18 and then go, you know, move in together. Uh, Well, she couldn't get a passport without her parents' signature. And if her oh, mom if is mom's the one dead, to then dad will sign it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Good plan. Never mind. No flaws. Yeah, and apparently Juliet also had journals, but uh, her mother instructed, when she heard that Pauline got arrested, instructed the servants to burn all of Juliet's journals, so we'll never know. I mean, good thinking? <laughs> yeah. It hope maybe kept her out of a lot more trouble? The way that Peter Jackson interprets the Fourth Kingdom is so interesting, because they make these clay figures... And so once we get to the part of the movie where they've actually like in their minds entered into the fourth kingdom, you see like full level, like people in like these clay costumes. It looks so good. I love it. Yeah. That's um, such an interesting scene too, when we're fully put into the fourth world, because it's juxtaposed with the sexual assault that Pauline is experiencing in the moment. So you understand how much of an escape this is for her and why she has become as delusional as she has yeah it's how old is the boy who has sex with her he has to be a full-grown adult i mean he's renting and living in this house yeah he's got to be at least 18 yeah it's so bizarre that she chooses to go over and she's like i guess i'll lose my virginity whatever i'm like this is a that's, choice. That's statutory rape. Maybe don't do that. It's also a weird it's choice. It's the 50s. They didn't care. Well, yeah, that's true. We're a little bit more uh, strict about things like that now. But it's also really interesting. There's a scene where this guy is basically like obsessed with her. And Pauline tells Juliet this. And she gets so jealous. Yeah. Like, you can see 
how intense and important this relationship is just with like that one line where she's like, I don't even remember what she says. I should have written it down. Um, I don't remember, but the gist is that Pauline goes to visit Juliet because she's, um, she's recovering from a bout of TB and she says, oh my God, I think, I think his name is John. John's yeah. in love with me. She's like, how do you know? Did he say? And she's like, she didn't, he didn't need to say, I can just tell. And she's like, oh, so you're going to leave me for a boy. That's why you haven't been writing back. She's like, oh, no, I was just kidding. No, uh, it was no, just I a joke. Never. No, not at all. Yeah. And then you see like, she does cut him off pretty much and is like nah, my friend has the weird power dynamic ball in her court right now so i i've got to stop this because i need this intense friendship more than i need an inappropriately aged boyfriend well and it also didn't really seem like she liked john she liked that he liked her yeah so. and i think yeah realize like oh well juliet still likes me more so i'll i'll keep her around there is a really weird power shift once um Juliet and Pauline meet because you really do see Pauline like come into herself because yeah. of this relationship but maybe that wasn't the best thing I also love that the girls just think they're gonna run off to Hollywood and write these screenplays and get famous and be actors like there's a whole scene where they have like a shrine and <laughs> Juliet they uh Pauline's about to put a picture I think of Orson Welles on there mm. or it's already there and Juliet's like no he's ugly and she takes it and throws it away <laughs> and then there's a later scene where they're being chased by a guy who looks like Orson Welles like in their imaginations yeah. there's this weird fantasy sequence they go see the third man who if you've seen Orson Wells is the villain in and he's just like chasing her through alleys or chasing the both of them it's very weird also i think orson Wells is very handsome so i i don't know why they yeah. said he was the ugliest man on the earth but that's that's also when the sex scene happens they get chased right into their bed yeah and stuff happens. Yeah, I know. And don't. it's all speculation if whether or not in real life if it happened or not. In terms of the movie, it makes sense that this would be the kind of what it would lead to. Well, and I think in the diary it said that as well, but at that point she had been writing as the characters, so it's still very ambiguous. Like, who knows what happened? Yeah. But you know what did happen for sure and that we should talk about? Uh, the actual act of murder. Want to talk yes. about it? Uh, so their plan was that they were going to invite Pauline's mother out to Victoria Gardens with them. And the plan was that Pauline would be in front. Juliet would be behind. Pauline had a brick that was in a stocking. And the plan was one, one very hard, sharp hit. Mom would be dead. They would push her into an embankment. They'd go get help and say they were attacked. Instead, Pauline hits her mom once, and her mom does not go down. And then Pauline has to hit her again, and again, and again. Apparently, at one point, Juliet took over, and then Pauline took over again. So when they run back to the tea station uh, to, ask, to ask for help, they are covered in blood. So, uh, doesn't really look like an accident. And that's how the movie starts. You don't see the death, but you see them running, covered in blood and screaming. This was the moment that they realized, oh, 
we've been living in delusion. We thought one good crack to my mom's head with this brick uh, would take her out. And then it had to have been in the middle of beating this woman to death that they realized, oh, no, we live in reality. Things are so much harsher and more brutal than we ever realized. And that's horrifying. And I do understand unfortunately why they go through with doing what they're doing because i don't think that's something you can just stop in the middle of but this is the reason that every time i want or every time i think i should rewatch this that little voice says no don't do it because i forget how brutal brutal that this is because you've been living in this like fantasy world with them and this is just a very staunch reality when you see them commit this act. It's awful. And um, Pauline's mom's name was, I think it's, is it Hanara? Uh, yeah, Honora. So Honora. Honora. Um, she fought back. So it wasn't like she was on the ground, they beat her. She fought back. So uh, yeah, it's like, there's no going back. I can understand why Pauline has never spoken about this. I wouldn't. <laughs> I don't know what she could even say it's probably best that she doesn't because it's something she's had to live with for you know she's 85 years old now so you know however long that is it's crazy yeah um it's such an interesting juxtaposition though because the world is such is so fantastical and i i think the fact that peter jackson chooses not to film that scene in like a fantasy Mm. world yeah, I think that gives credence to what you said, that it's the breaking of their fantasy, that yeah. they're just completely in this bloody, terrible reality. And even with all of that and witnessing what they do, I really love that the movie never makes them a villain, but it also never completely sympathizes with them, at least after this act or during this act. Yeah. It just kind of lets you live in that experience with them. And I think that's a really smart choice. Yeah. I think that's the most respectful thing to do with this being a real case as well. I think it's really interesting that uh, Melanie Linsky's character in the show she's in right now has a very similar weird relationship with her best friend. That's, That's all. I just like that they keep casting her as a, yeah, as these characters. And in general, Uh, put her in everything. She's great. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's so good. Shall we move on to our next movie? Oh, man. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, Our next movie is from 2008. The Swedish film Let the Right One In. So what is what is your relationship with this movie? My relationship with this movie is one time I watched it <laughs> and then 10, 15 years later, I watched it again. And now we're recording a podcast about it. I don't really have a story. I just, I think you must have suggested it. I don't know who else would. Uh, I watched Probably. it because it was streaming. It was, it was, it was nominated... For I think it was nominated for Best Foreign Film. Um, it wasn't. It was for the BAFTAs, 
but they fucked up something with the eligibility of it for the Oscars where because of the time it came out, it wouldn't have been eligible for like the 81st. So then they held a special screening, but because Sweden sent a different film, they canceled the screening and then they're like, well, we can't consider again. So it's not eligible. It was a whole big mess. Um, yeah, I must have recommended it because that pool scene, uh, was so shocking to me at the time. I was like, everyone yeah. needs to watch this movie. That was really one of the only things I remembered because I, there was such a huge gap in the times that I watched it that we just recorded a, um, like watch along on Patreon. And I remembered a few sequences, but I didn't remember much about the plot except for the very Oh, excuse me, the very end. Yeah, this is definitely a more quiet movie. Mm -hmm. It's such a simple story, um, but not at the same time. But the the movie is about a boy named Oscar, who his parents aren't really there for him, and he's getting bullied relentlessly at school. One night, he meets his new neighbor, Eli, who appears to be a little girl standing in the snow without any shoes. They enter into a friendship at the same time. There's all those mysterious murders happening around the town. And you find out that Eli is a vampire. I don't know what pronouns to use. They enter into a relationship together. And the movie ends with Eli protecting Oscar from his bullies. And then Oscar becomes Eli's like new caretaker. And they leave the city together. And they're like, they're both 12 yeah. Give or take. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> to quote the movie. So I read the book and the book does a very strange thing <laughs> of uh, if you are a person who has seen this movie, you know what the quote unquote twist is. Uh, the whole movie is, you know, if you read between the lines, basically a trans allegory. Uh, the book is less ambiguous and tells you an entire backstory and reveals that Ellie, Eli, Ely, depending on where you're from, however you want to say their name, is a vampire because they were kidnapped and sold into sex slavery and then um, assaulted and castrated by a vampire nobleman. Yeah, I don't need that backstory for the movie. I They trimmed a lot of the fat of the book and I'm really thankful because there's so much going on in it. I heard there's a chapter that takes place from the viewpoint of a squirrel. Maybe. Probably. I I don't know. It's all a blur. Uh, We watched the movie like two days ago and I decided to read the book and literally that's all I've been doing for the past two days. And it's, it's a lot of characters, some of which aren't in the book. We get like an entire chunk of it is dedicated to this cop. A lot of the stuff is from the point of view of the adults and it, it just, it's good, it's just too much for them to try to fit in this movie. So it's really nice that they boil it down to just the kind of love story between the two kids. I don't remember yeah. what my original point is when I started talking to where I am now. What was I talking about? Uh, you just started talking about the differences between the book and the movie. Oh, oh, yes, because the gender stuff with uh, Ellie in the movie 
is a lot more ambiguous. So yes, use they, them pronouns. That was the initial point I was trying to make. Oh, the book, they switch. That's what I was going to say. They switch pronouns in the last uh, like three fourths of the book. Once you find out about Ellie's backstory, they refer to Ellie as a boy for the rest of the time, which I think is very strange. It's a weird choice. And I don't know if it's just the translation that does that or what. Well, it's interesting because is Eli slash Ellie, are they actually a trans character? I think watching it as a trans person and watching a lot of movies um, that deal with, you know, queer subtext, I have learned to kind of read between the lines of it and would say, yes, but I don't know because I think a lot of the transness is also tied to the like vampirism and Ellie did not get a choice in that. And it's, it's a, an interesting thing to make them a prepubescent kid as well, because that's a lot of the time when people are, you know, really discovering their gender and sexuality and things about themselves. And it just seems like they're kind of in this perpetual state of ambiguity. There's something that I noticed because I watched I watched the American version that they did and I watched they they also made a TV show and I watched the first episode of that. Mm-hmm. And I think they did something very smart which is uh, Ellie is a girl. They're just like let's pick because I think it gets muddy and almost like problematic mm-hmm. when you're looking at Ellie slash Eli through the lens of the book in the forced castration and then you're like well ellie chose to dress like a girl to like be seen as innocent so they could Mm -hmm. hunt people easier and it it gets very messy yeah that's a lot of the dog whistles from transphobes right now are well trans women are just men in dresses who are trying to trick you and trying to be seen as vulnerable to like get into the bathroom and molest you i'm like that's not what's happening. So I do think, like I think they could do like a a, a less a less messy but mm-hmm. queer allegory for this, and they just haven't. Yeah. I, so I do like that um, they take out that backstory in the film, though, because another one of those dog whistles that transphobes are using is when trans people have surgeries like voluntarily have surgeries they are then saying oh well you're mutilating your bodies i'm like mutilation is some like you know it's irreversible damage i just had top surgery you have seen my chest does it look mutilated no it just looks like a normal chest and i i just i don't like the way that they're using that as talking points either yeah i think you could look at um Eli, though, and be like, well, since they have come to a point where they're able to get these, like, human helpers, Mm -hmm. um, they wouldn't need to dress as a, as, like, female presenting anymore. So I think the fact they still do is probably a net positive. Yeah, it's Um, like a comfort thing where they're like, oh, I am a girl. Okay. I think it was really smart of the casting and the directors as well to 
cast the kid they did because she has a very ambiguous look. And I think it's interesting as well that they decided pretty far into editing to have a, I believe, male actor dub over over her lines. And then I think that plays into the ambiguity as well, because, you know, trans women have deeper voices, but this is a little kid. And I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting choice, hmm. especially in relation to like the age, because she's 200 yeah. something years old, but looks like a little 12 year old girl. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. What do you how do you interpret the end? What's your interpretation of the end? Uh, So I watched the uh matt reeves version as well and i think there's a scene in that ellie has this guy who's like a renfield type guy named hawken and it's implied that he's been around for you know a long time since he was a kid and i think in that one it's much sadder and it seems like oh oscar is now going to like become this renfield guy and he's going to have the same journey and you know things aren't going to go well but i think in this one i want to read it more positively just because of the way that ellie is like just the way that they what am i trying to say did i write it down i did write it down okay scratch everything that i just said okay um Sorry, now I have to read what I, I said. I could tell you were thinking or frozen. <laughs> um, no, I'm reading what I said. What do you think? You tell me, and then I will respond. Uh, I'm so torn, because I think, I think they leave... The director wanted the end to be sort of positive, so his mm. interpretation is that Oscar and Ellie's relationship is very different than, um, their re- than Ellie's relationship with their, like, male helper. <laughs> Mm-hmm. they're renfield um that you see and like sacrifices their life for for ellie and then in the matt reeves version it is definitely insinuating that it's like a cycle that's just bound to repeat as much as i i get the optimistic feeling at the end of the swedish film you can just take a small step back it just seems like it's bound to repeat because Oscar's falling in love with this vampire, this other like twelve year old essentially, but he's gonna keep growing up unless you've read the short story that the author wrote after the Matt Reeves film, uh, where that is not the situation because he was like, "Damn it, my ending is happy. How dare you, Matt Reeves, try to make my ending not that?" But I, yeah, I I view it as like sweetly tragic like they are leaving with the best intentions but it's only bound to to fail i agree i would like to believe that it's a happy ending especially in relation to if you are reading ellie as a trans character because a lot of the time in media uh, queer-coded trans-coded people are either victims of the barrier gaze trope or they become the villain. So it is nice to see the end result, them being happy. But yeah, if you take one single step back, you go, oh, okay, well, this is going to eventually become pedophilia, which is uh, very prevalent in the book. And also, this is a 12-year-old boy. How far are they truly going to make it? They're going to get off this train, and then what? He can't rent an apartment. Is he ready to become a killer? Because he is going to have to 
they emphasize that it cannot be old blood that she feeds on. You have to kill someone and immediately get their blood back to her. And I don't think he has that in him because even by the very end of the film, he hasn't, you know, done any violence. He's got Ellie to be the one defending. He does smack his bully in the face with a hockey stick. That's true. I think, I think the only reason he couldn't fight back was at the end is because he was in the pool. Like, what do you do? That's true. He was being held <laughs> and outnumbered. Wall. Well, but I think there's a huge difference in who his attackers were at that point. Because the boy who is bullying him through the entire movie, he just seems like a kid with a bunch of goons and lackeys who do all of the work for him. And then by the end, this kid brings his brother, who is like a seasoned criminal, <laughs> yeah. to come attack him. So I think it's if crazy. he was, yeah, if he was faced with like that kind of danger again, would he be able to do it? And no, he is a twelve-year-old boy. No, he's very weak. He's like in this weight training program because he wants to get stronger and fight these bullies. But you know, yeah. he's a little baby boy. Yeah, but I think. The movie is such a, like, it's like a gothic romance that doesn't end sad. For as much violence happens in the Swedish film, it does still seem like a very quiet, introspective film. And what it's like to be young, what it's like to have that first relationship or that first crush. And, like, how far are you willing to go for that first crush? I guess that all comes back to Heavenly Creatures, huh? Yeah, these, I was so glad when you suggested that we pair this with Heavenly Creatures because these movies, they like run with each other so well. This makes a great double feature. But I do want to, what you just said about like first loves, I want to talk about Ellie's identity and specifically the scene where you get the reveal that Ellie is you know, one, a vampire, and two, maybe not the gender we thought. Oscar is like, hey, do you want to be my girlfriend? And Ellie's like, well, I'm not a girl. And, you know, you could read that as, oh, they're not a girl because they're a vampire. They're not even a human. Or if you're trans, you go, oh, hey, I see you. It's such a therapeutic scene for a lot of trans people to see Oscar immediately accept that because there's a lot of fear of rejection that is tied to that identity with like I've had experiences where I've been like talking to a person on tinder and then been like oh hey I'm trans and their follow-up is like I don't think I can date a trans person and just like ghost you you're like oh okay and there's also um in relation to the Hawking character a lot of like fetishes fetishes how do you say it fetishization yes thank you of trans people as well and i think you could maybe put that on his character along with the pedophilia so (laughs) yeah he's a mess anyway yeah that's i think a really nice scene for queer people to see because oscar you know there is not that rejection due to her identity there's actual understanding and then later he wants to learn more and ellie at this point has just said i'm not a girl so in his little tiny brain thinks oh well then they must be a boy and then later asks a teacher like hey can two boys be in love 
And you're like, oh, you're trying to understand this. This is very sweet. So I do want it to be happy. And I'm glad that that is what the author wants as well and why they wrote that novella. And I'm very interested to read what happens because I know Oscar does get turned into a vampire. So it's it's nice that they can yeah. you know, grow old while being young together. Yeah, the uh, the author was not happy with Matt Reeves interpreting like the cycle just continuing. So it was like, no, it's not the same with Oscar. It's different. She's going to turn him into a vampire. And that's like, well, then what the fuck are they going to do? Yeah, then what? Then they're going to groom another Be 12-year-olds rum in the countryside. <laughs> Last boys. Yeah, this isn't the best plan. I... Uh... The Matt Reeves version is interesting, too, because it does, it kind of takes the parts of the Swedish film that they don't take from the books and and puts it in that. Like, you've got the detective story that I Mm -hmm. just deeply don't care about. I'm really glad that they didn't do that in the Swedish version, because I don't want a bunch of cops in my horror movies. Unless it's John Saxton, then I don't care. The American version isn't bad, but I just don't think no, it does I anything. It. it doesn't do anything different enough to make me feel like it's worth existing. Not that it's a bad movie, and if you like it, like it's it's good. Yeah. But it's it's so similar to the Swedish version that if you're gonna remake it, like, which I guess they did do something different by making the ending a little more somber, but <sighs> they also did they did a lot more gore. Yeah, it suffers from that early to mid-2000s horror movie, everything has to be crazy, gory, bad CGI crap. The show does is very different from the book. I haven't decided if I want to keep watching the show. I It's not bad, but it wasn't anything that made me want to keep watching. Okay, yesterday you sent me a message and you were like, if this show's doing what I think, it's genius. And then later you said, oh, it's not doing it. What What did you think was happening? Because I thought the interpretation of, like, Oscar possibly, like, being doomed to repeat the cycle was really, like, an interesting thought. And so the show starts off with a man who's in his, like, 30s, 40s with a big crate and he starts doing the tap the the morse code so i'm like oh my god they're doing an interpretation where like this is oscar like what would happen oh, like and i was like that's cool. so it, but no it's just that's just that's uh, uh i can't remember if in the show the vampire's name is ellie or not yeah because it's eleanor it's a, it's her dad so oh. like the interpretation is that and I, I do need to go back and watch apparently episode seven is really good because it's all about her being turned into a vampire and then like what happened to her mom also I, like yeah. how hard it is to actually find blood for like your vampire kid but yeah it's just they're trying to find a cure for ellie uh eleanor and we do have the you know the neighbor kid that she starts to form a relationship with and they, like, added the side plot of this, like, guy that I don't know how he's related, but he's also trying to find a cure. He has a son that's, like, a vampire, and he's, but he's dying, so he has his daughter, who's also a chemist, coming to help, and it oh, just... okay. Vampire uh, chemistry. I just, it felt like they were switching the focus from Ellie and Oscar to, like, Ellie and her handler slash dad, and I was just like, I just don't yeah. think that's as interesting. No. 
I do, um, because you brought up that there was uh, more than just Ellie in this movie. I think it's really smart of them to only have one vampire and not know what the actual like status of how many of these people actually exist is. And the only instant instance that you really get is Ellie attacks a woman and does not mm. finish killing her. So you see her slowly transforming. And I think they do such a good job with that transformation. Like it's one, it's disgusting. Like the, the sound design and just everything that they do with this woman makes you like, you can feel like her blood boiling and her like stomach growling for all of this blood. It's horrifying. And they do a really cool thing with the sound design as well, where like you can feel her almost getting superhuman strength and like her uh, hearing is crazy good. I, I like that. I like that they show us how they transform and how uncomfortable it is. And then how it makes more sense why a child would be so willing to survive in this world and an adult would not. Yeah, because this woman immediately is like, no, open, open the, the blinds. blinds. I'm going to burst into flames instead. Yeah. One of the coolest shots I've seen in any horror movie. That Dude, whole that's room. also a, a... Oh, yeah, where, where she catches on where fire? Where she bursts into flames? Yeah, it's incredible. That's how the show starts. Oh, holy shit. But not not with the girl in the bed. It starts off with the, the scientist who's trying to find a cure for his son. They thought they did, and he's, like, standing outside. He's like, look, you're going to finally get to see your first sunrise in, in years. And it goes fine at first, and then he bursts into flame. But he doesn't die. I, I don't know how he got saved. But I guess the dad threw a coat on him quick enough or something. I don't know. Um, also, there's some sort of plot line where somebody is making, like, a drug that has sure. the effects of vampirism. Because they Isn't have this, this... just, like, the whole plot of True Blood? <laughs> a little bit. Like, there's a, there's a thing where Ellie and her dad get attacked, mm -hmm. and her dad's like, it was one of, it was, it was you. Like, there must be other vampires here. And she's like, it, he was not me. He's like, yeah, I was really strong, though. And then, like, later on, this drug dealer was like, yeah, it gives you, like, crazy strength. And, like, people say that, like, they can't go out in the sunlight after they take it because it makes their skin burn. Well, that's not what you would want. And then <laughs> but you got to make a high. new special, like, energy drink to combat the effects. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I do like, just speaking of other vampire media, how much you can see this movie influence things that came after it. Like, there's um, a movie that you and I have both seen that I think is a very underrated vampire movie called uh, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To. Mm. I think it takes a lot of cues from this movie. Uh, there's also Midnight Mass, I think took uh, a lot of imagery from this as well, specifically the way that the eyes look. Oh, yeah. Because it looks very cat-like in that as well as in uh, Let the Right One In. I like it. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I have any other thoughts. Oh, I had a question. Do you think this movie, so this is a period piece. This is set mm -hmm. in, I believe, 1982. Um, do you think that this movie would make sense to set in present day if we were going to do another reboot? Well, the show is modern day, so... Okay, but the but there's not as much focus on Oscar and, like, the bullying... 
So well, I think I that's the, the one thing he, that would... He does get... Oh, he gets bullied, uh, for sure. Okay. Um, but I only watched the first episode, so it seemed like they were more of just kind of establishing where everybody was at. So maybe it does become a lot more about that relationship between Ellie and the Oscar character, um, who's named something different, obviously. They always rename him. Um, but yeah, he gets very very much bullied because it's it's the same thing where he's standing outside like you know stabbing the tree stabbing trees yeah seven trees and then ellie's up in the train he's like what are you doing aren't you cold where are your shoes i don't get cold that? i don't remember how to be cold okay uh, Elsa. Weirdo. Oh. <laughs> um but yeah maybe i will keep watching the show they only had one season and then it got canceled but i don't know because i I tried to watch some reviews for it, and all of the written ones are like, vampire story, no bite. So it's just like, kind of like, nothing wow. new. But all the online ones are like, these guys who are just like, it's the best show ever, why did it get cancelled? Oh no. Like, it's like, I don't know if I trust your judgment. <laughs> I guess, yeah, you'll have to find out for yourself. I think the only reason that it would not be doable in present day is it would suffer from the same thing that the Carrie reboot the Chloe Grace Moretz one suffered from Mm -hmm. which was they did not know how to handle the bullying and transfer it to modern day where I think there's a very easy solution where it's more of a cyber bullying type thing where kids aren't like being violent towards you they are just making you not want to live and exist and once you know you kill yourself it's like well i'm off the hook i didn't do anything to the kid they took their own life but i think that would also mean because like heavenly creatures i think the reason oscar is so alone is because he lives in this small town and has never met anyone like him so i think if you set it in present day you give him the internet and now he's on like true crime vampire chat rooms making a bunch of friends so I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Just logistically, I don't know if it would make as much sense because you're just so much more trackable in the well, modern era. Yeah, that's true. It'd be really easy to find this serial killer, especially if he's doing such a bad job, which he really truly is. <laughs> yeah in the in the show they have purposely moved. I think they're in New York. I can't remember. But they purposely moved, where were they moved? They moved somewhere where there were, was already a high crime rate. Oh, so there okay. was kind of already a serial killer running around like, this will be a great disguise for us. I mean, yeah, you'd have to kind of become a copycat killer and make sure you're following the same steps so that no one suspects you. But he's but got also, a whole thing where, like, I gotta gas them and then hang them in a tree and then slit their throats. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and and Oscar, the Oscar character's mom in the show is a cop, so is a homicide detective. Okay, um, well, that, that's gonna be so, really hard to hide. So, yeah, I don't know where they were planning to go with the show, so. It sounds a little too complicated. I like the movie. Out of all of the media that I've seen of uh, Let the, the Right One the In, Swedish? I think it's, yeah, it's definitely the best. I think it's insanely beautiful. It's very cold. It's, yeah, yeah, it's like freezing in that movie. It made me feel cold watching it. But yeah, yeah, I think it's great. It's the best and, one. Uh, yeah, and I think there are some movies where when they let the writer kind of write the screenplay, bad but i think this one's pretty good yeah i think he made some great decisions and focused on the exact right thing rather than 
having everything a little too convoluted with the amount of characters that are actually in the book. I think one of the most notable crew members is uh, the cinematographer. Yeah. Uh, Hoyt uh, Van Hoytema, I think is, I, I could be saying that wrong, but Hoyta he's- Van Hoytema? He, he's a big, he's worked with Christopher Nolan on a lot of Nolan films. He also did Nope. Yeah. He just won the Chainsaw Award for that. He, I voted Yay. for him. Yay. I did too. I think those are all my thoughts. <sighs> I think those are all my thoughts. Yeah, there's some stuff that we- didn't talk about but it was mostly just the adult storyline which i don't yeah, think is that interesting Mm-mm. but yeah i i uh i think that's all of my thoughts should we move into ratings yeah let's do it before my brain melts and i forget what we're doing um so for heavenly creatures one out of five riley five mm, okay i really like it it's it's so good. viscerally upsetting by the end of it but I still think, like, there's nothing I would take out of this movie. There's nothing I would add. It is so respectful to the actual case. The animation parts and, like, fantasy parts are done so seamlessly. The acting, it, these two girls in their first ever roles, and, like, obviously they were doing something, right? Because they're both still working today. Fucking incredible. Everything about it's great. Five stars. What do you think? Good. Five stars. It's great. Hell yeah. <laughs> Enough said. Uh, what's your horror struck reading? Um, ugh. I don't know that it scares me. It just makes me feel so uneasy. It's upsetting. I'll give it a three. It, like, it, ugh, gives me, like, a pit in my stomach. I, that end scene is so upsetting. What about you? Yeah, mine's a two. It's very upsetting. I think the idea that someone you you love or a family member could like turn on you like that is absolutely frightening. Yeah, um, I hope it doesn't happen. I don't have any yeah, kids. Me too. I'll be fine if they want to um, be, you know, fantasy world gay weirdos. I'll let them. And then let the right one in. What is your general rating? Five. We got some absolute bangers this week. Five out of five stars. It's I. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's like a 4.5 just because, whereas Heavenly Creatures, I think I could like rewatch and rewatch. Mm-hmm. I think Let the, like, Let the Right One In is a very, very good movie, but it's not like high on my like, I want to go rewatch this right now. See, neither one of them are for me, but hmm. I still respect them so much. And I think that's all I need. Like if I watch them once okay. a decade, that's all I need. I do okay. understand Um, I think the pacing in Let the Right One In is much slower. It's almost a two-hour movie, and I don't know that it necessarily needs to be, but it's one of those movies where every single shot looks like it could be a painting. Like, it is Hmm. absolutely beautiful. I think there's really only one thing about the movie that I don't like, and it's just a technical issue where they do the, the CGI scene with the cats there's there's a cat attack i think that looks really bad and i think it just suffered from like logistically not knowing how to fit that in and make it look how to actually get cats to just jump on this lady and attack her like just cover her in catnip let the cats attack her (laughs) there's rolling all over her (laughs) i think the easiest solution would be trimming that scene down a lot and maybe just using like puppets and just seeing like Hmm. her you know, you know, like kicking the cats off of her or something like that. But 
other than that, I don't really have any complaints about this movie. I think it's very beautiful in, uh, you know, the visual medium as well as the story. I really like it. And the music is so pretty. I the love music's the music in beautiful. This film. Uh, two of the so best good. child actors I've seen in a movie. They're so yeah. believable, and the the violence in it is also um, very interestingly done. Where it's uh, very distant a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Like we are yeah. watching this as if we're like voyeurs. I like it. Yeah, and I like that in this version, Oscar doesn't really see what happens during the pool, because Ellie yes. kind of protects him from that. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. That um, was one of the things I most vividly remembered, was him not seeing any of the violence, so his Jeez, that perception of Ellie so good. changes. I'm surprised it doesn't upset me as much as you would think it does with my history of uh, reactions to decapitations. <laughs> That's yeah, not no, one that's haunted okay me. It. Yeah, fuck them kids. They what's are. Your horse, what's your horror? What's your horror rating? They're awful. I I give it yeah, those two. kids are awful. Yeah, I think it's two. Um, it's a one. It's a one for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I think is that all the things for these movies. <sighs> think, Anything else? I think so. What are we doing next week? We're doing so much. That's not true. We're <laughs> no, doing one story. Um, we are talking mediums. about we're talking about different mediums. What? Well, the story takes place over different mediums because TV as opposed to film. Oh, I was like, no, they're on screens. You're wrong. Um, <laughs> they're long form, <laughs> anyway. short form, you know, and then long form. Yes, we're talking about Interview with the Vampire, which is a novel and a movie and a television show and. A lifestyle. I don't know. I don't have any experience with any of the things I just listed, so uh, I'm excited to dive into it and see what these gay vampires get up to. Yeah, Anne Rice. It's gonna yeah, be fun. Anne Rice. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Maybe I don't know. Is it? I mean, Is it Anne a happy Rice, movie? Uh, very much changed the landscape of vampire like media. I, she's very uh, celebrated, and I know a lot of people were very sad when she died, so I assume she was doing something right. Yeah, that'll be fun. It'll be fun to dive into, especially comparing the 90s movie to the recent TV show that came out on AMC, and uh, how uh, differently they embrace the uh, relationship between Louie and Lestat. Yeah. I had a dog named Louie. He was named after that vampire. He was? Yeah. And that's going to be it for this week's episode of Horrorstruck. You can follow us over on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorstruckPod or over on Facebook at Horrorstruck Podcast. And guess what, guys? We're on Patreon now. So if you want to support us and to become part of our horror family, click the link down below. And as always, stay spooky. Stay spooky.